Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Well, we're continuing our series today, Make It Count. So let's turn in our Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 14 to 19, as Dr. Newfeld brings us a message titled, Defeating the Danger from Within. It's tempting to think that the greatest threat to the church is persecution or that an increasingly intolerant society which holds, you know, Christians and our worldview in contempt is a threat to the church. I mean, after all, if the, you know, wider culture shows contempt for the gospel, you know, some believers will lose confidence. They'll become ashamed of the gospel and more so some think. You know, it becomes harder to win people to Christ in that context. And so we reason, you know, when the culture around us becomes, you know, hostile to the gospel, then the church becomes weak. And this view explains why so many of us feel that, you know, we need to change the culture around us in order to get a healthy church. Now, I remember listening to an interview in which an author of a new book was explaining his thesis. He said, you know, the secular thought systems that have taken over the West, you know, since the time of the Enlightenment had devastated the church. And that includes how people think about creation. That is, you know, is there a creator or are we the result of evolution and random purposeless chance? And added to that are the questions about what it means to be human, what constitutes right and wrong, what's the nature of sexuality, what happens at death and so forth. And all that has changed in the West. And there have been Western countries, including North America. There's been a massive change in thinking about all these things. And the church, said this author, has suffered a withering barrage in intellectual circles, in the media, in our educational systems, in law, and in politics in general. You know, the society we live in, which once provided a favorable environment for the Christian faith, well, it surely turned against us and exhibits hostility. That explains, for instance, why so many immigrants, you know, that come to this country believe that, you know, they're coming to a Christian country only to find out that it's not, and they wonder how they misunderstood that. See, there's no doubt that a massive shift in the culture has done harm to the faith of many. You know, within a single lifetime, Canada has gone from a country in which close to two-thirds of us were in church on a Sunday to now where less than one in ten are in church. But, and this is at the heart of what I want to say. None of this is the greatest threat to the church. Our greatest threat is not from without, it's from within. False teaching combined with unholy patterns of living is far more deadly than anything the culture around us can threaten us with. You know, we've been studying the book of 2 Timothy written by Paul to his disciple, Timothy. The book, as we have noted, was written shortly before Paul's death. Paul wrote the book from a Roman dungeon, having been ill-treated on account of his faith. He's awaiting his execution, and he's not the first Christian to be treated in that way. Nero, the insane emperor, is arresting Christians. He's charging them with hatred of the human race. And Paul's writing Timothy, urging him to remain bold and unafraid and unashamed of Jesus in the face of this bloody trial. We should take note that the early Christian church grew rapidly in the face of such horror. And that's how the book reads until we come to chapter 2, verse 14. You know, at this moment in the book, the theme changes dramatically. Moving from one threat, that is persecution, Paul now takes on the greater threat, false teaching from within. And today we're going to find out what form this was taking in the early church, but more so what must be done in order to defeat this danger from within. So we're reading 2 Timothy 2, 14 to 19. 
remind them of these things and charge them before God not to quarrel about words which does no good but only ruins the hearers. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. But avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They are upsetting the faith of some, but God's firm foundation stands, bearing this seal. The Lord knows those who are his, and let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. Now, let's start our study from the beginning. The first five words in our text remind them of these things. Now, which things? Well, they're the things that Paul has been teaching Timothy up to this point in the book. You know, don't be terrified in the face of opposition. Don't be intimidated by a culture that despises Christians, but proudly proclaim Christ regardless of the reaction. Remind them over and over again of these things. Remind them. So who are the them? Well, the most likely answer would be that them are the believers in the church in Ephesus where Timothy is serving as a pastor. Remind the church or the believers who make up the church. You know, perhaps, but look more closely. In chapter 2, verse 2, Paul was telling Timothy to teach faithful men. And so it's also possible that the them, well, they're the leaders, the elders, those who have been trained to lead local churches and being charged to teach others. I mean, after all, the leadership in the church will set the stage for the conduct of the entire church. If the leaders are bold, so will the rest of the church be bold. Remind them of that, for that's their duty. Leadership consists of courage in the face of opposition. So having reminded the leaders to be bold in the face of persecution, Paul now instructs Timothy to remind the leaders also not to quarrel about words. It's just as important as the other matter. What's going on? What kinds of quarrels about words is Paul talking about? Well, in his first letter, that is in 1 Timothy, Paul says the false teachers were quarreling about words which produce, he said, envy and dissension and slander among God's people. So a picture emerges now. Whatever this battle about words was all about, it did not agree with sound words. Look, words are important because words convey meaning. Paul does want words to be spoken, sound words, words that dealt with the major doctrines of Jesus. So therefore, no doubt, the word battles he's warning against are nitpicking about non-essential matters. 1 Timothy 1 verse 4, Paul describes false teachers as presenting something he calls myths, endless genealogies which promote speculation. See, we do know that some of the battles about the Old Testament genealogies which were popular in those days, were controversies about the actual meanings of the names in the genealogical lists. And this debating over non-essentials was, in Paul's words, ruining some people's lives. I remember some time ago finding myself in an unwilling battle and was being drawn into debate. I had made a statement, the statement being that the genealogical list in Genesis chapter 5 was incomplete, and that the Hebrew word for became the father of could also be understood to say became the ancestor of. Now, if that were true, I had reasoned, then we don't actually know the amount of time from Adam to the flood, only we know who the key ancestors who lived during that time period. Now, I didn't think I was saying anything, you know, particularly important or even, you know, interesting. Instead, it sparked a debate in which someone accused me of things, well, I won't repeat them, But I reasoned, look, 
I'm happy to back off from all of this. I mean, after all, no Christian doctrine is at stake here. I was simply trying to understand the historical background of Genesis 5. But others, you know, listening to this debate, well, they became genuinely confused. And I came to see, oh my, people are mistrusting one another over what amounts to nothing. You see, this kind of debate over non-essentials is so harmful, Paul says, it ruins the hearers. So Paul says, charge them before God, meaning you take the leaders of the church aside, those who have been entrusted with a teaching ministry, and you have to let them know they're accountable to God over this matter, not to get involved in the kind of controversies that leads to nothing which does no good but confuses God's people. And so what's Paul actually saying? Well, he wants the leaders and the teachers of the faith to to stick to the essentials and to make sure they avoid unfruitful discussions that lead to unnecessary controversies. Make sure that the main things always remain the main things. Make sure you know what's ultimately important. Make sure you know what hill you're willing to die for and what hills are not worth the controversy. It's so important for leaders to know these things. Ah, but how do we decide on the essentials? And if the point is that we're not to get sidetracked from the essentials, how do we precisely stay on track? And here is Paul's answer. Remember, Paul is speaking to Timothy, who is to give leadership to the church. And look now at verse 15, where he says, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved as a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. That is, make sure the work that you do so handles the word of God that in the final day, you won't have to hang your head and be ashamed at how you've taken God's people on a wild goose chase. February is International Ministries Month, a time to celebrate the ministry work being accomplished in partnership with our friends in India, Sri Lanka, Curaçao, and beyond. Back to the Bible Canada is committed to providing ministry support, Bible teaching programming, resources, content, and international pastors' Bible teaching conferences impacting hundreds of national pastors. Most recently, funds were provided to Back to the Bible India to translate, produce, and distribute thousands of Dr. Neufeld's book, Making the Most of Your Salvation, throughout India in 10 different languages. God is at work through these opportunities, and your gracious gifts have provided the means to partner in ministry far beyond our borders. This month, would you consider an additional international ministry gift to help reach the 2022 International Projects goal of $50,000. Back to the Bible Canada has a global vision the size of our global mission. Thank you in advance. Call today with your gift at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. I think we need to get the phrase, do your best out of the way. You know, Paul told Timothy to do his best. And I have found in this country, the phrase, do your best, can be used to mean, well, a wide variety of things. I mean, one example, let's say, you know, a grade 10 student says to her dad, you know, dad, we have a math exam next week, and I'm really having trouble understanding grade 10 calculus. Now, imagine the dad's response. He says, honey, don't worry about it. Just do your best. So what does that mean? Well, it could mean 
You know, what do I care if you pass or fail? Just show up and write the exam. Now, imagine the same scenario in another house. The daughter says to her dad, you know, we have an exam next week, and I just don't understand grade 10 calculus. And dad says, honey, we, that is your mom and I, are determined that you do your best. So to make sure that happened, let's find out what we can do to help you master this subject matter, even if it means you get a tutor, you can't be online, you won't be having friends over, you're going to cancel your volleyball tournament over the weekend, you're going to spend hours mastering this subject because we want you to do your best. See, did you notice both scenarios used the same words, do your best, but what was meant was very different. So then how does Paul use this phrase, do your best as a worker who's rightly handling the word of truth? Well, the Greek word here means make every effort or to be zealous in your effort. See, Paul demands that Timothy go to his leadership at Ephesus and demand they become masters of the word. Do your best. Take all the effort that is necessary and possible to master the word. And notice the image. The teachers at Ephesus are to be approved before God, workers that have no need to be ashamed. There's coming a time when every single teacher of the Word will be called upon to stand before God and give an account of how they've handled the Word. Did they do their best or did they do their medium while they were interested in other pursuits? See, the phrase rightly handling comes from a Greek construction meaning to cut something right. You know, my dad was a carpenter, and he always demanded that before a cut was made in a board, that everything was measured right, that the angle of the saw was correctly set, that all factors were accounted for before the cut was made. Cut it right. Cut it with skill. And in the Greek-speaking world, that phrase was sometimes used by road-building engineers. And if Paul had that analogy in mind, you know, we can think of those engineers who built the Roman roads. They cut it right. Their skill meant that those roads stood the test of time. 2,000 years later, and some are still there. That takes training. It takes learning. It takes skill. And in verse 15, Paul applies that imagery to the teacher of Scripture. He's developed his skill and insight in such a way that when he opens the Scripture and teaches it, he's done his homework well enough. He's doing his best. He's learned to master the Word. He has cut it right. It thoroughly reflects what the Word intends it to say, what God intended to be said, and how God wants it applied to people's lives today, and how sad it is. When people attend a church where the teachers spend their time talking about, well, their own experiences, their own understanding of things, their own opinions, rather than a faithful exposition of the words of God. You see, if what a teacher teaches are his own views, well, then he'll have to cut it again and again because opinions change. But God's word never changes. You know, there's a need to skillfully and comprehensively study, explain, apply the word. Now to verse 16. But avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness. So did you notice how verse 16 is the opposite of verse 15? If the teacher of Scripture has not done his homework, has not spent many hours in study, he's not examined the words of the text knowing both what it means and how it fits into the grand narrative about Jesus, if he shortcuts the process and spends his time in other pursuits, has not done his homework, then the outcome, well, it's irreverent babble, or as other translations put it, godless chatter, words that aren't pleasing to God. That's where false teaching comes in, verses 17 and 18, and their talk will spread like gangrene. 
Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They're upsetting the faith of some. In 1 Timothy 1, verse 20, Paul mentioned that he has excommunicated Hymenaeus. He'd had him thrown out of church for false teaching. Well, by the time 2 Timothy is written, Hymenaeus is still hanging around. And it must have been that some Christian people are listening to him. So what's he teaching? Well, the most likely scenario was that he was spiritualizing the resurrection. The idea of a bodily resurrection was offensive to the Greeks. So very popular Greek philosophies of the day had the belief that physical matter was evil and that pure spirit was good. So at least that's how many Greeks thought, that if matter was evil, then, well, then the physical resurrection of a physical body was evil. So you wanted to teach something else, something spiritual. See, I have no doubt that these two men, in order to to appease the current philosophy of the day, found a way to restate the doctrine of the resurrection from the dead in such a way as to make it appear to have already happened. In other words, they were making Christianity more palatable to the current way of thinking. Now, how many of you know how many false teachings arise in an attempt to accommodate the Scripture to the zeitgeist, the spirit of the age? So you know the themes, sexual morality and what constitutes immoral sexual conduct. Christ is the only way to the Father, or do other religious pathways also lead to God? Whether the Bible is inerrant and infallible, or contains human opinions and mistakes? Whether human beings are fallen and sinful and under the judgment of God and subject to hell, or whether we're essentially good and have no need of redemption? See, each of these issues at the heart of the essentials of the Christian faith is being challenged today. So Paul says, if you're going to defeat the danger from within, then first stick to the essentials. And when you try to adapt the Christian faith to the culture, you sow the seeds for the destruction of the faith of many. And Paul compares that to gangrene, the killing of tissue, which in the end will destroy the body. He says, this kind of thing is upsetting the faith of some. And the great reason why the Christian faith has been reduced in size, let's say in this country, is that teachers in the church have been disloyal to Christ. So does that mean that false teaching can kill the church? You know, is the danger from within so great that it will do what persecution from the outside is unable to do? Well, listen to verse 19. But God's firm foundation stands bearing this seal. The Lord knows those who are his, and let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. See, in many ways, verse 19 should be seen as a crescendo, climax of everything that Paul has been saying. Even though there is before the church the ever-present danger of what can only be called traitors among us, Paul is convinced they can't succeed for two reasons. First, God's firm foundation stands. God will not lay a foundation that man can destroy. The church is God's invention. The church is not the product of human ingenuity. It's rather brought forth by God and it can't be destroyed. Well, perhaps I need to make a point of clarification. I don't mean to say that the local church can't be destroyed or the church in a region can't be destroyed. I I mean rather that the universal church of Jesus is altogether enduring. That's the point. Now comes the second reason why Paul is convinced the false teachers won't succeed. All those who belong to the Lord's church have a seal on them. You know, a seal in the ancient world was used to prove the authenticity of something. If you got a letter from someone, you checked the seal to see if it was authentic. In the same way, Paul says, the true church has a seal, as does every genuine believer. 
Not two seals, but one seal. For the two things he mentions are a part of the same package and can never be taken apart. See, the first part of the package is the statement, the Lord knows who are his. And the second aspect of the seal is this, let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. The doctrine of election necessitates a doctrine of holy living and repenting of our sins and clinging to the power of the Holy Spirit. You see why both parts of this seal are so vital? The first part is dated in eternity. The second is produced in time. The first part is a declaration of what we must believe. The second is a declaration of whom we must obey. The first part makes much of God's predestined mercy. The second, much of our necessary duty. The first refers to our security, and the second refers to our purity. Take one of these away and the seal isn't authentic. But if the seal is authentic, it will defeat the danger from within. And this is the hope of all who trust in Christ. The church will remain until Christ returns again. Praise God. John, thanks so much. But let me be frank for a minute, okay? You know, it would appear, and many onlookers would suggest that the church, at least in Western countries, is dying, or or if not dead, or irrelevant. Is it? Oh, absolutely not. I mean, first of all, I mean, I look around me and I see people in the Western world who are so hungry for a spiritual reality in their lives. And, you know, I mean, that's why people have borrowed from so many different sources of spirituality. But but even that will tell us something about, you know, that we can minister Christ to them. One of the things I love to say to believers is, you know, stop, um, you know, machinating and, and, you know, rubbing your fists and saying, you know, I mean, oh, no, I mean, things are going from bad to worse. Of course, they're going from bad to worse. They always have been. And uh, the response, however, is let's just simply be faithful to the gospel. And, uh, you, know, you know, I might say stop listening to the news even and start listening to the news that comes from the Holy Spirit. I mean, see the people who are interested in the gospel, see where the low fruit is hanging, and go ahead and share the gospel with those who want to hear. And I often say to people in this country, have you looked around and seen all the immigrants that are coming in, and have you also noticed how many of them are open to the gospel? Well, give an ear to that and recognize that there's a wonderful opportunity that Christ is providing us today. So, good days. Thanks, John. And remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue our series, Make It Count, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, Bible teaching you can trust. Since 1957, Back to the Bible Canada has provided excellent, trustworthy Bible teaching to Canadians. The result of faithful Bible teaching is thousands of lives being encouraged, challenged, even transformed from coast to coast. What is accomplished can be attributed to people like you who share a heart for the Bible, but also those who share a heart to provide Bible teaching resources beyond our borders. Partnerships around the world ensure that we do our part to sow God's Word through Bible teaching programs, print resources, and Bible teaching conferences beyond the confines of country, culture, or language. February is Back to the Bible Canada's International Ministry Month. Your one-time gift toward our $50,000 target or considering becoming an international monthly partner would do so much. 
To give or to sign up for monthly partnership, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.